0: Welcome to the ABR Podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers' Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner, Academy Travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers' Week, The Odd Restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. Hello, this is Dan Disney. One of the world's most illustrious poetry competitions, the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, opens on the 3rd of July and will remain open until the 9th of October. Last year, I received the prize. This year... With the magnificent poets Felicity Plunkett and Lachlan Brown, I'm fortunate enough to be judging the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. Of course, we look forward to receiving and reading your entries.
1: For details about the 2024 Porter Poetry Prize, worth a total of $10,000 in prize money, visit the Australian Book Review website. In this week's ABR podcast, we revisit the Australian Labor Party's long and troubled relationship with immigration. We hear from ABR's new Laureate Fellow, Dr Ebony Nielsen, a research fellow at the Australian Catholic University, who has written an essay for the July issue of ABR. Nielsen examines the ALP's action and inaction at key moments in immigration debates from the time Arthur Corwell became Australia's first immigration minister in 1945. Nielsen argues that while the ALP no longer looks like a happy white men's club, its policies on immigration reflect a long-standing ambivalence around race. Here is Ebony Nielsen with A Happy White Men's Club, the Australian Labor Party's uneasy history with immigration.
2: A Happy White Men's Club the Australian Labor Party's uneasy history with immigration. On election day in 2022, thousands of Australian voters, perhaps already in line at their local primary school, democracy sausage in hand, received this text message Breaking! Australian border force has intercepted an illegal boat trying to reach Australia. Keep our borders secure by voting Liberal today. Refugees had not been a hot button issue in this election and the messages were generally seen as an unsuccessful last-ditch effort by a coalition government already on the ropes. But the new Albanese Labour government was quick to confirm, just a day after being sworn in, that it had turned back the boat without hesitation. A public warning was issued to people smugglers that Australia's border policy remained ironclad and inflexible. Such statements are usually for the benefit of the Australian public, rather than an imagined audience of people smugglers. But why did a Labour government so recently handed a mandate for political change feel the need to demonstrate its tough border stance immediately? In part, it stems from the Australian Labour Party's long history of unease about immigration. The ALP was at first one of the white Australia's staunchest defenders, and became, eventually, the party to declare it dead and buried in 1973. But even where Labour leaders made radical, progressive changes to immigration policy – There were deep undercurrents of equivocation and ambivalence. The ALP struggles still to tell a coherent story about itself when it comes to immigration, particularly about its history with refugees and asylum seekers. Australia's first foray into the mass migration of people from outside Britain and Ireland came with a Labour government. Following World War II, thousands of Central and Eastern European refugees migrated to Australia and were followed by large numbers of Southern Europeans in the 1950s. Arthur Corwell, Australia's first immigration minister and architect of this post-war migration scheme, was a late convert to any kind of mass-assisted migration. He was the image of a traditional labour man, connected strongly with the trade unions, and concerned that facilitating the arrival of people who could not afford emigration would put downward pressure on wages and increase poverty in Australia. Robert Menzies himself later wrote that he thought only someone, quote, known as a lifetime Labour man of the strictest orthodoxy, like Corwell, could have pulled off this radical change to Australia's immigration policy. Australians needed to be pulled along by a leader who had himself changed his mind, at least about European migrants. Labour's orthodoxy was deep scepticism about assisted migration and a strong commitment to excluding, quote, coloured and other undesirable races as the ALP's first policy platform in 1900 put it. This was partly to protect Australian workers' wages and conditions, which the labour movement had fought hard for. But the Australian worker was always a white man, and labour was also deeply committed to an ideology of racial superiority. The party's first leader, Chris Watson, who was briefly Prime Minister in 1904, set this out clearly, stating that his opposition to non-white migration, quote, although to a large extent tinged with consideration of an industrial nature lies in the main in the possibility and probability of racial contamination state assisted migration of any kind even of british migrants was also a potential threat the australian workers union warned in 1909 that it would quote crowd the streets of our cities with poor men and women and starving children australia's small population also posed a threat Only a decade or so after Federation, conservative figures such as Liberal Party leader Joseph Cook warned that Australia had to populate this continent or perish. Population growth was required for economic development, but also security. These were the deep anxieties of a settler colonial society. The white man's grip on Australia's wide open spaces always seemed tenuous, no matter how much violence was perpetrated upon Indigenous peoples with the imagined covetous gazes of nearby overpopulated Asian countries. These fears reached a high point with World War II, as Japanese conquests in the Pacific moved ever closer. Twin anxieties that Australia had almost been overrun, and that had to avoid the sort of economic collapse which followed the previous war, saw the Labour Party's attitude on assisted migration shift. Corwell, a long-time critic, was by 1945 proclaiming that Australia would commit racial suicide if it did not increase its population. When it became clear that both Australia's birth rate and the supply of British migrants were insufficient, Corwell sought more creative solutions. So it was a Labour politician who ushered in Australia's first non-British mass migration. The war had displaced millions of people in Europe, and this population crisis provided a convenient source of white if not British, migrants. Corwell's post-war migration scheme was carefully engineered. In many ways, it was an economic necessity, as the post-war labour shortage became chronic. But Corwell still had to convince the public and the trade unions that migrants would create jobs rather than take them. The first step was an indentured labour scheme for the refugees, whose passage had been paid by the government and the International Refugee Organisation. These migrants could be directed to work wherever the Commonwealth needed them, at least for their first two years. The ALP also struck deals with the unions for Australian workers to have the pickings. New migrants would be sent to jobs and locations that Australians didn't want. Finally, Corwell had to emphasise his migrants' whiteness. The first photogenic boatload of displaced persons was carefully selected, consisting mostly of Bolts, Latvians, Lithuanians and Estonians. Corwell was photographed with smiling, blonde-haired, blue-eyed refugees, whom he now called New Australians. Public opinion had perhaps already begun to shift. A 1943 Gallup poll found that while half opposed altering the White Australia policy, a strong minority, 40%, were in favour of limited coloured immigration. Nevertheless, Corwell was careful to assure Australians that, though these new refugee migrants weren't British, White Australia remained intact. He even pledged that for every foreign migrant, there would be 10 Britons, a statement that was largely aspirational. Between 1947 and 1951, more than 460,000 migrants, most of whom came from non-English-speaking backgrounds, joined a population of just 7 million. Labor lost office in 1949, but the Liberal Party pushed ahead with the post-war migration program. Australia's policy and its demography had changed radically, but it remained white. Corwell continued to spruik the necessity of population growth, but was single-minded in deporting Asian migrants who had arrived during the war, and blocking the entry of so-called war brides from Japan. He stated openly in 1948 that Japanese people shouldn't be permitted to pollute Australia. This was perhaps a response to the recent events of war, at a time when anti-Japanese sentiment remained widespread. But Corwell also blocked other Asian migrants from migrating to or staying in Australia they were not part of his vision for the new post-war Australian nation. Corwell did enact minor reform for Chinese migrants already in the country, under pressure from local Chinese communities. And although public opinion still appeared decidedly opposed to Jewish migration, even as the Holocaust's horrors became widely known, Corwell often quietly championed Jewish migration. He and the Chifley government had many of the old ALP prejudices and were deeply opposed to Asian immigration. Nevertheless, these Labour men of the old school executed a stunning immigration reform, which began to dismantle the idea that Australia was a British nation. But it was still a white nation. When the Labour Party's younger, educated middle class members began agitating for the party to withdraw support for white Australia, they met resistance. Corwell bemoaned these long hairs and worked to preserve the old ALP. White Australia was eventually removed from Labor's policy platform in 1965, but the pace of change remained slow. A Victorian ALP migrant committee was still complaining in the late 1960s that whenever immigration was raised, Labor members, quote, suddenly become indistinguishable from their conservative counterparts. They all merge into a happy white men's club. That club was broken up with the arrival of Gough Whitlam and his immigration minister, Al Grasby. From 1971, the ALP's platform became explicitly non-discriminatory. For the first time, support for white Australia was no longer bipartisan. Following Menzies' retirement in 1966, Harold Holt had enacted significant immigration reform, making space for some Asian migration. But the Liberal Party still refused to declare the era of white Australia over. It was Grasby, touring Asia to promote the government's immigration reforms, who declared without equivocation that White Australia was dead. Give me a shovel and I will bury it. The Racial Discrimination Act of 1975 was another important symbolic change. For decades, racial discrimination had been enshrined in Australian law. Explicit legal protection was a significant victory. But this is not to say that Whitlam heralded a new era of tolerance and harmony in immigration. Economic downturns saw migration targets decrease and there were no immediate increase in non-European migration. Whitlam's interest was based primarily on foreign policy. He sought to improve Australia's relations with its Asian neighbours. When his policy was tested by the prospect of assisted migration, as refugees began fleeing Vietnam and a war to which Australia had contributed, older labour attitudes prevailed. Few refugees were accepted and, if Clyde Cameron is to be believed, Whitlam informed his cabinet that he, quote, was not having hundreds of fucking Vietnamese Bolts coming into this country with their religious and political hatreds against us. So this time it was not Labor which welcomed refugees en masse, but Malcolm Fraser's coalition government. Labor under Bob Hawke and Paul Keating did oversee increased immigration from Asia and defended this policy robustly when it came under attack in the mid-1980s. Keating's government particularly Work towards progressive goals in both Indigenous reconciliation and multiculturalism. But it was also the Keating government, under Immigration Minister Gerry Hand, that introduced mandatory detention for asylum seekers in 1992. Subsequently, refugees would routinely be locked up while their claims were considered. The ghost of white Australia reared its head through the Howard era, with Pauline Hanson and her brand of noisy contempt for Indigenous Australians and Asian migrants and the notorious Tampa Affair of 2001. The Howard government's refusal of the Tampa, a Norwegian ship carrying refugees rescued at sea, gave birth to the Pacific solution and is often thought to have swung that year's federal election in its favour. This politicised fear of uncontrolled arrivals by boat, of Asian, African and Middle Eastern people no less, was both new and very old. Asylum seekers became the new faces of non-European invasion and strong, sovereign borders the cornerstone of Australian security. The ALP's defeat in the Tampa election continued to haunt the party. Throughout the election campaign, the Howard government was resolute on border security, and continually accused Labour of being wishy-washy, willing to prioritise illegal immigrants over Australians. Henceforth, the ALP would be extremely sensitive to accusations that it didn't take Australia's sovereignty and national security seriously enough. In 2008, Kevin Rudd's government did abolish temporary protection visas, which held many asylum seekers in traumatic limbo, but there was still deep unease. Both Rudd and Julia Gillard, concerned about looking weak on security, continued hardline approaches to boat arrivals, turnbacks and offshore detention. And under Anthony Albanese, it's difficult to say, after only a year, Though asylum seeker policy is one of the issues driving Labor voters into the arms of the Greens, the ALP doesn't yet appear inclined to change its stance. The new government's response so soon after the election, at least, indicates that we're looking at more of the same. This ALP does not seem inclined to confront its complicated history regarding immigration, and will continue to grapple with its deep unease over refugees and border policy. There have been signs of a more humanitarian approach, with the re-abolition of temporary protection visas, and the decision to allow the Murugarpin family to return to Bilawila. These are important changes, but Operation Sovereign Borders, with its scary deterrent website, remains in operation. Labor's Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, now appears in its videos, stern-faced, to declare that Australia's tough border protection policies remain, and changes to the temporary protection visa do not apply to you. The Greens' immigration spokesperson, Nick McKim, summarised the views of many left-leaning voters after Labor's response to the Election Day vote, tweeting, Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The ALP may no longer look like the old, happy white men's club, but its ambivalence and uneasiness about refugees and assisted migration, it seems, remain.
0: Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors, who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.